Let's return to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7, we find Jesus approximately six months away from his death at the spring Passover feast. In John 7 verse 2, we learn that the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Passover was the major spring gathering. The feast of booths was the major fall gathering. It was held at the time of grape and olive harvest, roughly the time of late September early October. Josephus tells us this was the most popular feast, that, of the three principal feasts that drew Jews walking into Jerusalem every year. During this feast, the Jews would build makeshift structures. These structures consisted of light branches and leaves, which they sometimes slept in, where they had them out in their courtyards. These booths, or tabernacles, as they were called, gave the feast its traditional names, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. In the very busy harvest time, workers would often erect these little booths out in their fields so they wouldn't have to come home at night. The shelters also commemorated the migratory lives of the Hebrew children in the wilderness after they had been liberated from Egypt. So that's the time of year. It's the Festival of Booths, according to verse 2. In the last sermon, we observed the rising tide of opposition that Jesus experienced late in his ministry. Verse 1 relates that Judea was now a dangerous place for Jesus. The Jews were actively seeking his murder. Jesus' brothers also misunderstood him. This is a theme that we explored in our last sermon. His brothers arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the feast. Jesus, mindful of his own safety, held back in Galilee, but then came down later, arriving at the middle of the feast. Verse 11 tells us that before his arrival, the Jews had been actively searching him out. And verse 12 indicates that rumors about Jesus were already rumbling around Jerusalem. But verse 13 tells us those rumors are kept quiet for fear of the Roman overlords. And that brings us now to the middle of the feast in verse 14, where Jesus presents himself suddenly at the temple. So let's read from verse 14 down through verse 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who was seeking to kill you? 
Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Collected the verses that we just read concern the same theme that we discovered when we were working through Matthew's Gospel and we came to the final week in Jerusalem. That central issue in Matthew's Gospel was authority. The word authority shows up in verses 17 and 18, but through the whole passage has to do with Jesus' authoritative teaching. Jerusalem, of course, is a traditional capital city. It was the city of David. It was assumed to be the capital of the future Messiah. So it's no surprise that the issue of authority really becomes central to Jesus' visits down to Jerusalem in the south. So keep that issue in mind as we just work back to the passage now. In verse 14, Jesus puts in an appearance at the temple. This is the most sacred site in all Judaism. And here, too, the greatest scholars and the rabbis of the Jewish world world gathered. We're not told on this occasion what Jesus was teaching, but we are told of the crowd's reaction. That's in verse 15. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it? This man has learning when he has never studied. Well, who these Jews are, we're not told. They could have been Jews who traveled from afar and came to Jerusalem for the festival. We don't know. They could be local Jews. Regardless, their response is one of amazement at the teaching of Jesus. This is not the first time the crowds have been astonished by his teaching. Back in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, clearly Matthew was emphasizing the superiority of Jesus over these Jewish scribes. And John now is making the same point, but in a different way. The people are amazed at Jesus in light of his lack of a formal education. Israel, of course, in those days was a very small community. The Jerusalem temple was really the central hub of all Jewish learning. It's actually quite inconceivable that a noted teacher could arise in Israel without passing through Jerusalem schools. But who was this Jesus? Who taught him? Which rabbi did he train under? He lacked an accredited degree from the University of Jerusalem, so to speak. So who is this guy? Now, there is an implicit assumption in the Jews' question that we actually might miss in our Western educational context. You're here in a university town, and we have a way of thinking about education that's actually quite different in the way the Jews thought in the first century. It is true that even the West, aspiring students desire to study under a prominent professor. We 
do so, this is kind of a rite of passage into your respective academic disciplines. To be a doctoral student of a world-renowned professor is quite a badge of honor. Now, having said that, modern Western education values independence. That's crucial. We value novelty far more than education. The ancient Near East valued it. We value innovation. We value independence. In the modern world, you're actually free to challenge your professor's ideas. In the modern world, new theories are constantly generated and subsequently debunked. In fact, in much of the modern world, only a lame professor would hold on to outmoded ideas. In many cases, you can't even keep up with all the new ideas that are coming out through the journals. In a word, modern education is progressive, and increasingly so. It always come up with new ideas, new theories. In the ancient world, education had a much greater focus on preservation. Learning was largely a matter of preserving ideas by passing them down from one generation to the next and the next. This is why Aristotle got in so much trouble, because he wasn't quite happy with Plato. This is very unusual to actually debunk your, uh, your, your, your mentor's ideas. But in our world, this is normal. In the ancient world, a great scholar was a sort of, a, a, a student of a great scholar, let me say it that way, was a, a, a custodian of his ideas. You take the ideas and you preserve them for the next generation. Now, the Jews valued theology, but they valued theology as it has been preserved from generation to generation to generation. And the way that you preserve learning is that you simply attach yourself to a prominent Jewish authority. And you take up the mantle and you keep on the preservation. So keep that in mind now as you interpret Jesus' response. In verse 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Well, Jesus actually is not emphasizing the novelty of his teaching in a progressive sense, not at all. He's actually holding up that preservationist model. Now, certainly, Jesus did preach many things that the Jews had never heard before. That is true, but Jesus, in this case, emphasizes that he is actually preserving someone else's ideas. But there is a catch, an obvious catch. Jesus' teaching did not come from a famous Jerusalem rabbi. Whose ideas is he preserving here? Where is the line of thought that he's preserving? Jesus' teaching came from God himself. Jesus was taught by God. Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, but the wisdom he developed in didn't come from Jerusalem's elite. Who taught this guy? It didn't come from Jerusalem's elite. In fact, Luke tells us that he had already baffled the Jerusalem authorities at the age of Now, when the Jews taught, they attempted to meticulously 
established each point of their theology by appealing to precedent, by appealing to earlier rabbinic judgments. That's how you establish your teaching. And that actually is precisely what Jesus is doing here, but with an important difference. Jesus' precedence is God himself. So friends, if that is true, then we have to ask a really crucial question. How do we know whether Jesus' teaching actually came from God? And how would you know that? A person shows up and says, well, my teaching comes from God. How would you know? This really is an audacious claim on Jesus' part. So how do we know his teaching came from God? The answer is, verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know what the teaching is from God, or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. When a person aligns his will with God's will, he discovers the truthfulness of Jesus' teaching. It did indeed come from God. When your will is aligned with God's will, you understand that Jesus is speaking God's word. That's verse 17. In other words, Jesus does not have an independent agenda from the Father. When a person submits himself or herself to the commands of God, to God's will, he or she will recognize Jesus' authority. That's what Jesus is saying. That leads to another crucial question. How would any first century Jew know God's will? Again, verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know the teachings from God. Well, how do I know then what God's will is? What's the answer? The answer is God's law. God revealed his will, his standards for human behavior and theology, his values, his desires for his creatures, where? In his law. He told us what he expects. Now, we've got to be very careful here because on the one hand, we are not under the law. Hebrews tells us that Jesus introduced a new covenant. We no longer offer animal sacrifices at a temple in Jerusalem. In many ways, we simply are not under the law. All right? However, we don't want to push that truth so far that we do irreparable damage to the teaching of the New Testament. Paul clearly says that all Scripture is profitable so that the man of God may be perfect. All Scripture means all Scripture. Friends, if we didn't have the law, how much knowledge of God would we lose? Would we know what God hates? Would we know what God loves? 
consider as immoral, would we know what God considers righteous? If we suddenly lost God's law, we, friends, would have an enormously impoverished view of God because God's law is a revelation of God. All Scripture is. Friends, if we lost God's law, we actually would lose our schoolmaster. God's law is a schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. We would lose our teacher. So how then would Jesus' teaching be of any value to us? Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, which of course is in his law, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. I want to know that Jesus' teaching comes from God. Don't you? And this is really crucial. I want to know that what Jesus said actually came from God. So I have got then to do God's will. And God expressed himself by revealing himself in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And there was a tendency, even among well-meaning Christians at times, to radically divorce Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, from the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament can be viewed as harsh and judgmental. Jesus of the New Testament is the, the opposite, this tyrannical God of the Old Testament. We friends have to be very, very careful when we start down this road. We're very careful here. We are saved by grace through faith. No question about that. We are not saved by works. We're not saved by keeping all the laws, and nobody ever was saved by keeping all those laws. But at the same time, Jesus never despised God's law. Jesus loved God's law. Jesus meditated on God's law at such a deep level that by the age of 12, 12, he was astounding the greatest minds in all of Jerusalem. That's how much Jesus delighted in obeying God's law. And he came to fulfill every word of it. So again, a criterion for us to really know Jesus is to follow God's will, which is expressed through God's law. Now, I almost seem to stop and do a whole series on the New Testament believers' relation to the Old Testament law, and I can't do that at this point. But I do want to give an extended illustration at this point that I think will really help us grasp the point. Because we really do want to come out right on the proper use of the Old Testament. All right? So here we go. This is, this is a long illustration. All right? But you, you can follow this. Joseph Fletcher may be one of the most influential people that you've never heard of. Fletcher was a theologian, a professor of ethics, and an Episcopalian minister. He taught Christian ethics at the Episcopal Divinity School at Harvard Divinity School from 1944 to 1970. And Fletcher wrote a famous book whose title you've all heard of Probably a great deal of what you've heard about the book is hearsay. Later in his life, Fletcher identified as an atheist. He came to espouse infanticide, euthanasia, euthanasia, eugenics, and human cloning. He was a signer 
of the Humanist Manifesto in 1974 and was awarded the title Humanist of the Year by the American Humanist Association. However, it was as a theologian, writing from a Christian perspective at the time, that Fletcher became famous for the production of his very famous book, Situation Ethics. You've all heard of Situation Ethics. Have you not? But did you know there's actually a book by that title? So that's where the idea comes from, from the book. Now, nearly everyone assumes that situation ethics is a secularist approach to ethics, and it's not. Nearly everyone assumes situation ethics postulates there are no moral absolutes. And that is not true. That is not what he says. Nearly everyone assumes that situation ethics says, given your situation, that's how you come up with your proper response, and that's really not true either. Would you believe that in Situation Ethics, Joseph Fletcher lays out a biblical case for moral decision-making? A biblical case. There's a lot of scripture in the book. And the absolute moral norm that Fletcher insists upon is love. In every situation, Christians are required to respond with Christ-like Love. Fletcher believed that he was doing justice to Jesus' great summation of the law in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Here's how Jesus summarized the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every last one of us would say, yeah, that's it precisely. That's got to be the center of Christian ethics. It ought to be. Love God. Love your neighbor. If we truly were to keep those two rules, friends, the world would be a far better place, would it not? So what better ethical approach could there be than to follow Jesus' summation of the whole law? Love God. Love your neighbor. That's how New Testament believers fulfill the law, right? Jesus said it. But you have to keep reading Fletcher. Because his theological system rooted in Jesus' summation of the law led to justifications of adultery, prostitution, lying, and infanticide. Quite literally, Fletcher claims that prostitution may be good if done in love. Fletcher's system led him eventually right out of Christianity into secular humanism. So how does all that happen? Well, let's cross-reference momentarily with Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul makes a significant point about God's law and Jesus' summary of God's law. In fact, in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul will also summarize God's law just as Jesus did. What he says here is really going to be helpful in understanding how the law really applies. Romans 13 and verse 8. 
Paul writes, oh, no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul here identifies commands that broadly define our relationships to our fellow human beings. Pay your debts. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder or steal or covet. All right? Let's follow Fletcher's argument for just a moment because it will really help us interpret this passage. Fletcher's book, Situation Ethics to New Morality, lays out three possible approaches when making moral decisions. Here they are. Number one, the legalistic approach. Fletcher writes, with this approach, one enters into every decision-making situation and comes with a whole apparatus of prefabricated rules and regulations. Not just the spirit, but the letter of the law reigns. The legalistic approach adopts a whole series of laws, like Moses' regulations in the wilderness, that govern all of our actions. But he argues that a whole approach degenerates into Phariseeism into legalism. And I think that we're all appropriately conscious of legalism. So second, he says, is the antinomian approach. Antinomian approach. Antinomian means against law. It's the opposite of a legalistic approach. Fletcher writes, this is the approach with which one enters into decision-making situations armed with no principles or maxim whatsoever. We don't have any laws. No, no, no governing laws. He says, this is the belief that by grace, by the new life in Christ and salvation by faith, law or rules no longer apply to Christians. Now, Fletcher rejects both of these approaches, the legalistic and the antinomian. And I, I think that we would too. So we're saying, okay, is, is there another approach? And Fletcher's third option is what he calls the situationist approach. Essentially, the situationist approach says, love God and love your neighbor. I quote, the situationist holds that whatever is the most loving thing in the situation is the right and good thing. And friends, that actually sounds pretty good. What's the most loving thing to do in each situation? But you keep reading, and you realize that you were just lured into a trap. For example, Fletcher suggests that Jesus would have tolerated deviant forms of human sexuality. He writes, Yet we find nothing in the teachings of Jesus about the ethics of sex, except adultery and an absolute condemnation of divorce, a correlative matter. He said nothing about birth control, large and small families, childlessness, homosexuality, fornication, or premarital, premarital intercourse, sterilization, artificial insemination, abortion, sex play, petting, and courtship. None of that matters to Jesus. Whether any form of sex, hetero, homo, or auto, is good or evil depends on whether love is fully served. Fletcher references a movie where a whore helps a timid young sailor who was intimidated by women. 
in the movie, apparently he learns how to function as a man, and then he can go off and enter into a responsible marriage relationship and have children. And according to Fletcher, the whore had lovingly helped him to move past his sexual inhibitions. She, she responded to him in love. By the time Fletcher is done, traditional Christian morality, including the Ten Commandments, have just simply disappeared. It's just gone. Simply love God and love your neighbors yourself, right? That's all you got to do. And I, I can't help but read Fletcher and wonder whether he was a prophet or telling where all culture was headed. One of the reasons I want to spend some time with us today because I really, I really think he was a prophetic voice saying this, this is where the culture is going. Love is the only norm. Just love everybody, right? Just love everybody. But friends, we are left with this enormous question, what is biblical love? What does that even mean? Acceptance? Tolerance? Never pass judgment. Never confront anyone living in sin. Just, just love everybody, right? That's what you got to do. Love everybody. Well, Jesus did indeed summarize all the law. Love God and love your neighbors yourself. But here is the crucial question. Can you define love apart from the law? Jesus was not discarding God's moral law by emphasizing love. Jesus was arguing that obedience to God's law is actually how love is manifested. When you see a rebellious child just flippantly disregarding his parents' law, would you say that child is moved by love? No way! Did you notice how that right here in Romans 13, Paul does not endorse adultery or murder or theft or covetousness. Far from it. Rather, refraining from adultery, refraining from murder, refraining from theft, refraining from covetousness is actually how we express love. We fulfill the law of love. Verse 8, that's verse 8. We fulfill the law of love. How? By keeping the commandments of verse 9. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Don't tell me that you are loving your wife when you are committing adultery. You're not. Don't tell me you're loving your friend when you are stealing his property. You're not. And don't tell me that you're loving God when you are violating his commands. That is not love. So with all that in place, let's go back to John 7. That really was an extended example, but I think it really is crucial that we understand that neither Jesus nor Paul were nearly so flippant in their disregard of God's law as many a modern professing Christian, including Joseph Fletcher. Of course, he's in his life in atheism. But again, I really, I, I really think he, he pointed to, to the future that we now live in. Now, again, let me be very careful. I am not teaching that justification comes by law-keeping. If that's what you're hearing, you've badly missed the point, all right? Justification does not come by law-keeping. In fact, the whole reason we need to be justified is that we are lawbreakers. And we need to confess it. Now, Jesus claimed in verse 17 that when we obey God's will... 
we know that his teaching is from God. We identify Jesus with God when we obey God's will. And where else do we find God's will apart from God's law? Has God expressed his will about adultery? Yes. Has God expressed his will about theft? Has God expressed his will about covetousness? Has God expressed his will about murder? Has God expressed his will about marriage? Has God expressed his will about idolatry? Has God expressed his will about all sorts of things? The answer is yes, 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 and yes, he has. And remember that God has appointed Jesus as judge over all nations. And you will stand before Jesus as either your Savior or your judge. So don't pretend to know Jesus if you simply disregard God's will. Jesus upheld it. That's verse 17. Now there are those who, like Joseph Fletcher, want to reinvent morality by casting aside God's moral laws. And those kinds of people, Jesus says, actually seek their own glory and should not be trusted. And that's verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority, and as he's not speaking on God's authority, he's got his own system. The person who speaks on his own authority, what's he do? He seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, that's Jesus, is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The truth is, through every generation of the church, there have been false teachers, false preachers, scholars with new ideas and new agendas. They're, they're, they're there in every generation. And they are glory seekers. They're typically very proud people who think they have it all figured out on their own authority. They come at you with new theories and new ideas that we got all figured out at last. God didn't really mean what he said in that. Friends, do not trust those kinds of people. Trust only the people who truly seek the glory of God. Trust no one else who seeks his own glory. This is what Jesus is telling us. Is this person really, truly seeking Again, when Jesus refers to the person who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he's actually referring to himself. Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father who sent him. This is why we can trust him. Now, his dialogue continues. Jesus will eviscerate the Jewish leaders engaged in precisely the kind of duplicity that characterized Joseph Fletcher. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Again, Jesus upholds the law. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Friends, the Jews have the law of Moses. And they prided themselves on being children of Moses. But they found ways to get around the law. In fact, they were looking to murder an innocent man and killing Jesus. Well, how exactly is that compatible with the Ten Commandments? 
The implication is very simple. If, if you do God's will, like obey the Ten Commandments, you'll know that Jesus is teaching us from God. But here, Jews, is where some of you are disregarding God's will. You are trying to murder me. That means, of course, that they'll never understand. So long as they're trying to murder Jesus, they will never understand that Jesus' teaching actually came from God. Because they're not doing God's will. Now, of course, Jesus' statement stirs up a firestorm. And the crowd in verse 20 accuses Jesus of being demon-possessed. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They deny that anyone is actively seeking to kill Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus knew better. There's no point in really debating the matter, so he's going to ignore that for now. And at this point, Jesus will change the whole discussion. And he will reference a miracle that he performed the last time he was in Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and reread verses 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, what is that all about? If you recall from chapter 5, Jesus had previously come down to Jerusalem, and there he had healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And that is most likely what he's referring to in verse 21, the one work. The healing at Bethesda, if you recall, provoked this firestorm because Jesus performed the miracle on the Sabbath. And apparently the Jews were still smarting over that miracle and Jesus' subsequent explanation all the way back in chapter 5. They're so angry about it. And if you recall from chapter 5, Jesus made the audacious claim that not only was he working to heal on the Sabbath, but God the Father was also working on the Sabbath. And that's what got Jesus into so much trouble. It's one thing to violate the Sabbath, but to assume that God himself violated the Sabbath. This got the Jews really, really stirred up. I mean, this is like blasphemy of the highest order. Not only that, if you recall from chapter 5, Jesus went on to just clearly associate himself with the Father. And John told us back in 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. So you've got to take that whole scene back there in John 5 and let now pressurize John chapter 7. That's what Jesus is referring to here in verse 21. Now also in John 5, far from backing down, Jesus gave us probably the clearest testimony to his identity his identity that's not anywhere in the Gospels. All right? So, what is Jesus' response now in John chapter 7? How is he going to respond to these accusations from the Jews? Well, Jesus is not going to rehearse everything that he said back in John 5. Right? You may just want to footnote that and say, John 5, this is what this is all about. He's not going to go back all the way through that. Rather, Jesus is definitely going to turn the whole conversation to the matter of circumcision in an effort to point out their hypocrisy. 
And Jesus acknowledges that circumcision was part of the Mosaic law. But also, he points out that circumcision predates the law. Abraham and the fathers practiced circumcision long before most received God's tablets on Sinai. That's the, that's the parenthetical mark there in verse 22. Right? But in compliance with the Mosaic law, the Jews would indeed practice circumcision on the Sabbath. The law required the circumcision of a child on the eighth day following his birth. So, what if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Uh-oh. What is a Jew supposed to do? Answer? He practiced circumcision. In other words, Jesus pointed out that the Jews themselves recognized a hierarchy of moral obligations. That's crucial. Think of it this way. Who commanded Sabbath rest? God. Who commanded circumcision on the eighth day? God. What are we to do? What do we do when duties conflict? Duties never conflict. Actually, that's not Bible. They do. All right. What happens when we have two more obligations, both of which came from God? Well, obviously, we need some sort of moral reasoning to figure this all out. And the Jews decided that God's command to circumcise size held precedence over the command for Sabbath rest. And there seems to be no problem with this. God didn't write laws actually sort of torture us into insecurity when complex situations arise. God did indeed give us some flexibility in such matters. Sure. Keep the Sabbath. But does that mean I can't heal a sick man on the Sabbath? Is that what that means? Was that God's true intent? No. That's why Jesus, very deliberately, back in John 5, went to the post of Loma and they healed a man deliberately on the Sabbath. And the, this was not a critical situation. The man had been sick for years and years and years. Jesus could have waited until the following day. He didn't. He deliberately showed up on the Sabbath and healed the man. So what is Jesus doing? He is pointing out the Jews' hypocrisy. And carrying around a murderous anger toward him. Ever since he healed that man on the Sabbath, the Jews have been trying to find a way to kill him for a Sabbath violation. But they themselves circumcised on the Sabbath. Like, what's the difference? I mean, you circumcise on the Sabbath and you want to kill me because I healed a man? Their problem, to put it very bluntly, was a matter of externals. That's what Jesus essentially says in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. For the Jews, it was all about appearances. It was all about keeping up the laws on the outside and flattering themselves that they had become holy. But their hearts were corrupt. Right judgment comes from a heart that truly seeks God's will. All right? Well, hopefully it helps us just work right down to that passage. In conclusion, what really is the application for us today? 
Well, you want to have right judgment in a morally complex and corrupt world. You want to know how to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You want to navigate this world of moral complexity. Well, here's the first thing you need to do. Stop trusting your own judgment. Stop trusting your own judgment. That gets everybody into trouble. Don't start with your conclusion in mind. Don't start with the very thing you want to do. Right judgment begins right back there in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know what the teaching is from God. Yes, indeed, the whole law is summarized by Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is true. But how do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? Answer, start right here. Seek to align your will with God's will. Don't begin with your own affections, your own desires, your own inclinations. That's what got the Jews into all kinds of trouble. Rather, ransack the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And don't neglect the law. We're not in the law. But don't neglect what the law tells us about God. To know your God is to know His will. To know your God is to know His will. And when you do that, then you can bring your will 